So Father, we now come to your word. We bring ourselves under its power, under its authority, Father, and we recognize that the same spirit that inspired these words is the same spirit that has raised Christ from the grave, and it is the same spirit who is still alive within us today. Because of what you have accomplished for us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, we can be free from the power of sin. We can be free from the penalty of sin. We can be raised to new life with you. So, fathers, we open these words this morning as we submit ourselves to the authority of your word, Lord. We ask that as our sinful flesh brushes up against your word, that it would be your word that wins. Father, that we would surrender desires, we would surrender our hearts, we would surrender our minds, we would surrender feelings, we would surrender emotions, we would submit it all to you. And could we see once again this morning clearly the hope of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So Father, we ask this morning in faith, will you edify your church and glorify your name as you sanctify us in the truth of your word. And we ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. 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 You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'll encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 23 this morning. If you're here today with us for the first time, my name is Taylor Burgess. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. Uh, we're honored to have you worshiping with us today. And what we have been doing as a church family uh, all throughout the course of the fall is we've been studying verse by verse Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And uh, Lord willing, uh, barring some sort of crazy unforeseen circumstance, we will wrap this up this morning. Um, So today will be our last uh, morning that we spend together, 2020, in the book of Philippians. Several weeks ago, uh, we had a Sunday afternoon membership meeting at uh, our church offices, our membership class, Crosspoint, that we offer several times a year. And uh, this, for me, was coming off of the heels of a very, very busy week. I'd been gone for a couple of days. We had a full, packed week as a church. Uh, This is when we were still having three worship services in the morning, which uh, I'll just say out loud, I think for the first time this year, definitely not my favorite at all. Uh, Wore me out a lot. And and so we'd get to Sunday and typically uh, by that point in time, I'm ready to crash. But on this particular Sunday, we still had a membership class going on four o'clock that afternoon. So uh, I rush home and, and sit down. I eat something real quick. I get to the office. And, and uh, at this point of the day, man, my throat was just shot. After preaching a few times this morning, I had a different speaking engagement uh, earlier in the course of the week and, and just a lot that was happening in the life of our church. And um, so my throat was really shot. My voice was shot. And I just asked our staff, like, hey, does anybody have any, have any cough drops? So Michael Morrison, who's our, our uh, connections minister, he went in his office. He came out with a bag of cough drops and um, he tosses me one. And as I'm getting ready to unwrap it, I realized this particular cough drop has an inspirational message on the wrapper. I didn't know that was a thing uh, with cough drops, but apparently it it was. And uh, the type of inspirational message that was on this cough drop sounds exactly like the type of message a person needs uh, if that person needs a cough drop. And uh, the three word inspirational message I found was this, get through it. And, and I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, no offense to those of you who were at the Crosspoint meeting that night. Uh, that's how I was feeling. I just kind of needed to get through it. And I don't feel like that was just uh, the theme for that particular day. I feel like we can put that up as the theme of, of the year 2020 altogether. Uh, this past weekend, I was at a friend's birthday party, and I feel like every single conversation I had with those who had come together uh, this past weekend, as I asked, hey, how are you doing? How's your family doing? It was some form of, we're just trying to get through it. We're just trying to get through it because what comes with those words, what comes with that mentality 
of getting through things is, is that once I get through this, once I get through this challenge, once I get through this season, once I get to this next moment, that brings with it a, a promise of rest and of relaxation. It brings with it a promise of contentment and a promise of joy. But what we've seen, church, as we've studied the book of Philippians these last few months is that contentment in Christ, what we're promised in Jesus is that contentment in Christ does not have to come when we get through the challenges. Contentment in Christ happens when Christ gets through us. And regardless of the season that we're in, regardless of the challenges that we're experiencing, uh, those of you following along in your notes this morning, what we're going to see this morning in Philippians 4 is that the gospel empowers us to experience total contentment in Christ and not just ourselves to experience contentment in Christ, but to actually extend gracious encouragement to others to have something to give away in the midst of our challenging circumstances, regardless of how difficult they might be. So let's read. We're going to move very quickly this morning. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Let's read together verses 10 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes here, closing out this letter, I rejoiced in the Lord. Say, in the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking out of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit." I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply. Say will supply. Every need. Say every need. Every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first picture that we see in these 10 verses here at the end of the book of Philippians is a picture of gospel empowerment. Now we have well established at this point in time, every week of this message series, I've thrown us this reminder because this context is so important that the Apostle Paul is writing these words from prison. But I want to break down here for a moment just the full extent of Paul's circumstances and situations. So while Paul's in prison, Every day, he is literally chained to a member of the Roman Imperial Guard who would be watching over his every move. His life is on the line while he awaits trial before Caesar. After years of traveling the world, preaching the gospel, being very active, uh, Paul is now under house arrest. He's under total lockdown. Local pastors have been assassinating his character because they're jealous of his ministry. More than that, Acts chapter 28 shows us that Paul is being forced to pay his own rent. So, so you can imagine that proves to be really difficult when you're not allowed to work and go anywhere, and he's not going to get a whole lot of local support because the pastors who are there locally leading those churches are jealous of his ministry, and they love that Paul is locked away in prison. So if he couldn't pay, this could have gotten him into even more trouble. So it would be the understatement of the century to say that Paul's circumstances were less than ideal. He was in very difficult circumstances. This is quite literally an impossible situation. So in these 10 verses, Paul is expressing a deep, heartfelt appreciation for the gift that the Philippian church has sent to him. 
In spite of the challenges he faces, all throughout the letter, there's not been a single hint of defeat in his voice. The gospel has shaped every aspect of Paul's life. It has shaped every aspect and touched every aspect of his character. And this is what we see the gospel empowers. We see that the gospel empowers joy. Again, back in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Joy is the dominant theme of the book of Philippians. The reason we title this message series Invincible Joy is because we see this theme on display in all four chapters, no matter how difficult Paul's circumstances are. Four short chapters, we find the word joy or rejoice some 16 times, and here, Paul's rejoicing because of the financial gift that he's received from the Philippian church. Now, we're not given a reason why, but it appears that there was a season where uh, the Philippian church had been engaged in supporting Paul financially, but then for some reason or another, they had to cease uh, giving to him. It could be uh, that they just had a season of struggle where they weren't able, they could afford to give him any sort of financial support, or uh, maybe they weren't aware of his needs. We, We really don't know. But in either case, Paul's grateful that they have revived their concern for him. They sent a gift. Uh, You remember back from chapter two through Epaphroditus, he came and visited Paul. He almost died. Uh, That was even more bad news. He almost died in bringing this gift to Paul. Uh, So this church has gone above and beyond to serve Paul's needs. And as we've seen here uh, on several occasions uh, with that phrase in the Lord through the book of Philippians, the focus here is not so much on the act of the rejoicing as much as the object. Paul's joy is where? It's in the Lord. The the primary reason that Paul's rejoicing, the primary foundation for Paul's joy is not that he has received a financial gift. Paul's primary foundation for rejoicing is in the Lord. So Paul's testimony is not one of superficial happiness that's contingent on ideal circumstances. Paul's testimony is one of supernatural joy that can be known regardless of difficulty. We also see that the gospel empowers contentment. Each of these builds on the other. Verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So the gospel empowers contentment. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Not that I speak of being in need. Now, now you listen to Paul make a statement like that in the midst of the circumstances that Paul's in. It's like, Paul, what in the world are you talking about not being in need? Like, this is Paul's situation. It's like, Paul, you're in prison, so you need freedom. Your reputation is being destroyed, so you need friends. Your body is failing, so you need food. You have to pay your own rent, and you're not allowed to work, so you need money. So these are real pressing needs. And what's Paul saying? Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Here's Paul chained up to an imperial prison guard, and he said, hey, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. He says, my contentment doesn't come from the financial gift you gave me. My contentment is coming from what I have in Christ. That This term that Paul uses for contentment here, uh, content, it's used in this cultural context to describe a country that was completely self-sufficient. In this cultural context, this word was used to describe a country that had no need whatsoever from any sort of outside imported goods. It referred to a nation that had enough internal resources that it needed no external help while it needed to survive. So this is Paul saying, listen, while I've been here in prison, chained to these guards, having my reputation destroyed, being in need physically, being in need spiritually, being forced to pay my own rent and can't work, listen, I had everything I needed before you even sent me a dime because he had Jesus Christ. 
I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I had everything I needed right here. Before anything ever came my way, you know, just like during Paul's day, contentment in our culture is scarce. And we'll convince ourselves, if I could just get that job, if I could just have that salary, if we could just move into that house, if I could just have that relationship, if I could just get that device, if we could just get through it, if we could just get through this season, if we can just get the kids back in school, if I could just get back into my regular routines and rhythms of work, then I will be content. And we convince ourselves it's that next thing, it's that next object, it's that next paycheck, it's that next season. That's what's going to bring us contentment. But church, we have to understand the heart is a bottomless pit of insatiable desires. Solomon writes it like this in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This is from the wealthiest man who has ever walked the face of the earth. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or vapor. Paul also warns Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hardwired into the challenges of your day, the challenges of your life, hardwired into every material possession that exists is the lie that it will bring you joy. It's built into every one of these things. The contentment that Christ offers church is not circumstantial. It's not contingent on circumstance. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. So that's him saying, I know how to endure hardship. I know how to endure persecution and humiliation and shame. He says, I know how to abound. He says, I know how to handle success and momentum and upward mobility in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. So he says, I know that a full stomach doesn't bring true satisfaction. And I know that having an empty stomach doesn't mean I don't have what I need. He goes on to say, I faced abundance and need. I, I know how to keep prosperity in its proper perspective. And I know that scarcity does not mean that I am going without I have learned to be content in all circumstances. So you ask, what is it that Paul could possibly have that in spite of all of those challenges, he would still raise his hands defiantly and say, all my needs are met. We get the answer in verse 13. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. So the gospel empowers also perseverance. The gospel empowers perseverance. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, earlier this year, uh, someone sent me a picture of what I believe might be the greatest t-shirt slogan that's ever been designed. This is just sort of the theological nerd in me. Uh, but the, uh, the text of this t-shirt, it was a, a reference to Philippians 4.13, and this is what it said. I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context. And, um, and, and the reason I, that, that just really appeals to me is because if I'm just being honest, like Philippians 4.13 is probably among the top five, like most misapplied, misquoted verses in all of the Bible. You often see uh, professional athletes use this verse. They'll quote this verse. They'll put it on eye black. They'll put it on their shoes or on their cleats. And it's typically used in the context of someone uh, who's striving to win a game. They're striving to get a promotion. They're trying to get good grades or just generally achieve success. Um, back when I was in middle school, I grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, grew up in Boone, and 
We got lots of snow during the winter and uh, very active outdoors during the winter. And, and, and our house, the house that I grew up in, we had a big hill in our backyard. So man, when winter came around, us and all the neighborhood kids, we tore it up. Uh, king of the hill, who knows what I'm talking about? That's probably illegal in, in 2020 because we're sensitive like that now. But uh, king of the hill, we would play in the backyard. And uh, man, we, we'd sled, I mean, just day and night. I mean, we couldn't get out the door early enough in the morning, had to, had to be forced to come in late at night. But one year at Christmas, I was in middle school, I got a new snowboard and uh, was really excited about this because we had built this big jump about halfway into the hill in our backyard. And so I've been watching my brother and his friends and all the neighborhood friends. They were out there with their snowboards and their skis and they're flying down the hill and they're hitting the ramp and they just keep going. Well, man, uh, I just, for some reason, getting adjusted to my new snowboard, I couldn't land when I hit this jump. And man, I tried all day long, like morning into the evening. I'd start at the top of the hill. I'd hit the jump. I'd hit the ramp. And I'd hit the ground. And I would just crash. I couldn't, couldn't stay on my feet. And then I'd, you know, take my snowboard off and climb back up the top of the hill, strap my bindings back on, go down again. And I probably attempted this like two dozen times to the point that it's like late at night. I'm by myself at the top. So everybody else has given up on the day, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this thing. And, and so as I'm sitting one more trip to the top of the hill, I sit down, I strap my feet in my snowboard bindings. And this is what I say to myself. Lord, your word says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And this is a thing that I'm about to do. Like this is a hit. So I'm, I got my snowboard and I'm going to hit this ramp and I'm going to get So I, guys, I'm, I'm having worship like right at the top of the hill, right? Like it's me and the Lord and I'm going to nail this thing. And, and so sure enough, like I start down the hill, got good speed. And as I'm coming to the top of the ramp, uh, the top of my snowboard, front of my snowboard catches the lip of the jump. I flipped literally like head, like head over heels, like forward. And I landed directly on my face uh, in the ground, face just buried in the snow. And it was in that moment as a middle school boy with my face buried in the snow in the backyard of my home in Boone, North Carolina, that I learned that apparently context matters. <laughs> context is a big, big deal. So what does Paul mean when he says that he can do all things through Christ? Because I look at that, I'm like, that was a thing I was trying to do. I quoted the verse, I claimed the verse, it did not happen. Like, did I, did I do it wrong? You know, did I, did I quote it wrong? Did I have unchecked sin in my heart? Like, what it is that, that, that happened here? So this is where it's important. We have to look at the context. So, so when you're reading your Bible, you don't just ask, what does this verse say? What does the verse before it say? What's the verse after it say? What's the whole chapter say? What's the whole book say? What's the whole Bible say about this particular subject? And when you look at the immediate context, it's abundantly clear in verses 11 and 12 that this is about contentment and it's about possessions. The NIV, if many of you might be using the NIV this morning, actually translates this, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. I think that's probably a little bit better translation. So what Paul's saying is, is uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all of those things. I can do all of these things. I can do all of that so that I just mentioned in verses 11 and 12 through him who gives me strength. And church, this is why it's so important because if you reduce that passage to a, a pithy self-help speech, I mean, totally devoid of its context, you're not even gonna scratch the surface of what it is that Paul intends. You're not even going to touch the surface of what he intends. Paul has not just learned to be content with success and victory. Paul has learned to be content with suffering and agony. In all situations, in all circumstances, I have learned to be content. He doesn't intend for I can do all things to simply mean that he can overcome any obstacle to achieve success. He intends it to mean that even if the obstacles overcome him, he still has everything that he needs in Christ. So it means whether you win the game or you're humiliated and you lose by 50. 
Whether you get the promotion or you unexpectedly get fired, you ace the test or you get a failing grade, you make six figures or you're living on welfare, whether you beat the cancer or it takes you to your grave, I can do all things. I can do all things through him who gives me strength because I have all I need in Christ. This is what Paul means. We have to keep this in context. This is why the writer of Hebrews encourages us, he warns us, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Contentment does not come through having possessions. Contentment comes from knowing that Christ possesses us. We belong to him. We will never have, church, all that we need until Jesus Christ is all that we need to have. Until we know that regardless of the season, regardless of the circumstances, that is our hope for persevering, is knowing that regardless of where we find ourselves, we have all we need in Christ. So it's learning to say, I have learned to be content in seasons of plenty. I will not complain in seasons of want, regardless of the challenge I face. I can do that. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. Context matters. Context matters, and that's how the gospel empowers Paul. But now let's, let's shift gears here a little bit and look at how the gospel empowers the Philippian church. Let's read together in verse 14. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So we see that the gospel also for the Philippian church empowers generosity. Verse 15, Paul says, in the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning of their partnership together, in the beginning of this ministry. Remember, uh, after he had planted the church in Philippi, left for Macedonia, even while he was just a short uh, trip away in Thessalonica, at every, uh, every single stage, the Philippian church remained supportive of Paul's ministry financially. And you might remember from a few months back, the very first Sunday that we we opened up this book together, uh, that there were three very unique characters involved when Paul planted the church at Philippi. The church of Philippi, Philippi started with a very successful uh, businesswoman whose name was Lydia. She was a seller of purple cloth, scripture tells us. Uh, There was also a a Syrophoenician slave girl who had been demon-possessed, but then she was freed uh, from that uh, evil spirit. And there was also just a blue collar, carried his lunch to work, uh, Philippian jailer, a prison guard. Uh, And it was through the conversions of these three people and their families uh, that the church together in Philippi was born. So these people had come to faith in Christ. Paul had led them to faith. He had discipled them. He had baptized them. Uh, He raised up leadership before he moved on. This church exists because of the efforts of Paul, and these people remain indebted to him, that they are eternally grateful to Paul for what he has poured into them and invested them. And so anytime it's possible, uh, they desire to support his ministry financially. But he continues to reiterate this in verse 17. This is so important. Not that I seek the gift. So again, Paul didn't go looking for this. He he had all he needed in Jesus, not that I seek the gift, because he was content in Christ even without their support. Pay attention. This is so important for us today. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Say your credit. Put this in business terms. Paul's saying, I'm seeking the profit that accrues to your account. I'm not speaking of being in need. It's not me seeking the gift. I'm seeking this for your sake. So church, this is critical for us to understand. Paul is saying to them, listen, your financial support is not for my benefit. It's for your benefit. 
You are investing in the ministry of the gospel. You are investing in advancing the name of Jesus Christ. Church, our giving is not about what God wants from us or needs from us. It's what he wants for us. It's that we have increasing joy as we freely and sacrificially give because we have all that we need in Christ. This is, this is how we keep the hooks of the world's materialism from, from digging into our flesh and keeping us from, from walking in open joy is that we recognize I have everything I need in Jesus and that empowers us to generously give of what he's given to us. Uh, turn with me in your Bible for, for just a moment. Um, beginning of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 6. Go to Matthew chapter 6, and, and what I want us to see here in Matthew chapter 6 is, again, what it means that God intends giving to be for us. Not about what he needs from us, not about what he desires from us. Scripture tells us the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. He created it. It started with him. It originated with him. He's simply given it to us and distributed it to us to be stewards of these things. And this is what Jesus says about possessions in Matthew 6, 19 through 21 from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The location of our treasure reveals the destination of our hearts. Wherever we are placing and investing our treasure, that is where our hearts are going. That that's where our hearts are ultimately going to land. And so, so this is what Jesus is saying, is that if, if all of your money, if everything that you have, every resource you have, if it's always going into the house, if it's always going into the cars, if it's always going into the boats, if it's always going into expensive vacations, if it's always going into expensive gifts, if that's where it's all going, that's where your heart's going to go to. Where your treasure is, where you're placing it, the location where you're placing it, that's going to reveal the destination of your hearts. That's where you're headed. And so if you, you look at where you're primarily pouring your, your resources, your finances, ultimately that's where you're going to one day find your heart. And so this is the warning of Jesus. And it just makes me wonder sometimes that so much of the anxiety and the stress that comes with this season in particular, this season in particular where we're, man, we're trying to do the best that we can for our families and for our kids. We want them to have a, a fun and enjoyable Christmas. I mean, we just, we just spend and then we spend and then we spend a little bit more and then we still spend a little bit more and, and we still spend a little bit more and we keep doing this. It makes me wonder if a lot of the stress and the anxiety that comes from this season comes with the fact that our hearts are following our treasure. Instead of our hearts being rested and contented in Jesus, we're throwing our treasure somewhere else and our hearts are chasing after it. Where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. We ask, what, what is it that drove the Philippians to be generous? And the answer is simple. It was the gospel. It was the good news that God had already given them everything they needed in Jesus Christ. God had given them and granted them the salvation for their souls. So they were freed from material things. They were freed from the love of money, and they were able, even in their scarcity, to give above and beyond to ensure that Paul had everything he needed so the gospel could go forward. So how do we store up treasures in heaven? How, how do we do this? Well, I think Jesus shows us here. 
He shows us that we, we pour our money into the gospel. You pour your money into people. You pour your money into relieving physical suffering. You pour your money into relieving spiritual suffering and into supporting those who are taking the message of the gospel where Jesus has not been named. And when we give, this is the promise that we find back in Philippians 4, looking at verse 19. When we give, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So the gospel also empowers confidence. As we give generously, we can be confident that since God has provided for our greatest need, which was salvation in Jesus Christ, we can be confident that he's going to supply for our lesser needs. He's he's going to make a way for us. As we generously give of our money, as we generously give of our material possessions, we do so confident that the Lord is going to be faithful to supply all of our needs. And listen, if anybody has the authority to make this statement, it's Paul. He didn't ask for these things. He needed these things, but he didn't ask for these things. He was content with what he had in Christ. He said, I've learned to be content regardless of the situation and the circumstance. He's locked in prison. He's chained to a guard. He can't get a job, but he's responsible for his own rent. It's an utterly impossible situation. But what happens for Paul? The Lord provides. He provides generously and abundantly through his people. That's why Paul can say with confidence that God would supply all of their needs because he's experienced God's provision in supplying his own. Now, church, this is where we gotta be really careful because we don't wanna drift into prosperity theology where uh, the motivation behind our giving is that we will get more in return. I've heard a lot of pastors, a lot of Bible teachers very, very subtly, and and maybe even not intentionally, but very, very subtly drift into a prosperity gospel where they'll quote promises of Scripture and say, see, if you give, God will give you more in return. And and listen, we're going to look at that in just a second. There is somewhat of a biblical principle to that. But listen, as followers of Jesus, our primary uh, reason that we give, what primarily compels us to give is not that we're going to get more in return. We give because we've already been given everything we need in Christ. We give out of that. We give out of that abundance. It's, it's not putting God in our debt and, and obligating him. I mean, that's such a dangerous mentality to live in that you think just because I'm giving 10%, God's going to give me 20% in return. Thoroughly unbiblical. So, so we need to recognize and keep that in its proper perspective. And yet, we do see in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 9, if you want to turn there in your Bible for just a moment, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, we're going to read verses 6 through 12. We'll, we'll see that there's a biblical principle that shows the measure by which we give, it will be measured to us in return. So uh, yeah, just to set the context here again, uh, Paul has been taking up an offering for Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, it's his desire um, that this would be given by the church in Corinth as a willing gift, not as an exaction, like he doesn't want to show up like the tax collector, you know, like, hey, you need to give this and, and try to take it from them. And so this is his desire for them in their giving in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, that's the New Testament standard, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound for you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, verse 9, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So, so Paul, what he's saying here is that as followers of Christ, our motivation to give, it's not that we're going to get more in return. We give because we've been given everything we need in Christ. And if God just so happens to provide more in return, 
all the more reason to rejoice. That's what Paul's doing here in Philippians 4. He's like, I already had plenty of reason to rejoice. He gave them the command to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice before he said anything about receiving a financial gift. And so we rejoice primarily because we've already been given everything in Christ. And if God happens to give us more financial on top of that, then glory to his name. Praise God, all the more reason to rejoice. And we can have confidence that we have this. Paul says this in Romans 8, 32. He says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's our motivation for giving. Is that God in his grace and his mercy and his love, he did not even spare his own son. So how could we not generously give to him in return with the confidence of knowing he's going to provide for our needs. Church, none of us will stand before the Lord at the end of our lives and say, I wish I'd given less. I wish I'd poured more into the house. I wish I'd spent more on cars and on clothes and on material things. None of us will say these things. God could not have given us more than he gave us when he gave us Jesus. If he did not spare his own son, how can we not give generously for the sake of his kingdom in return. And as we do this, we do it with a posture of worship. This is how Paul says it in verse 20, a, sl- a small doxology here at the end. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Back in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we, we find that many believe this to be uh, one of the earliest hymns of uh, the early church. It was capped off with praise of the name of Jesus. If you remember, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we've already seen that, uh, that expression of praise in chapter 2, and this is just a short doxology that we see here at the end of chapter 4. Because worship here at its foundation is a response This is the appropriate response to a God who has given us all that we need through his son, Jesus Christ. Because Christ empowers us to be content, regardless of the circumstances, because God will generously supply all of our needs, we can sing, like Paul, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That word, amen, Lord, let it be so, let it be done. Let the name of Jesus be magnified above all else to the glory of God the Father. John Piper has said, I think very well, that worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. This cannot be done by mere acts of duty. It can be done only when spontaneous affections arise in the heart. Church, I just want to challenge you this morning. If you can hear that verse from Romans 8, if you can hear the news that God in his love and mercy did not spare his own son so that you could be saved, if you hear that and nothing happens in your heart, it may be time to check your pulse to see if you are truly in the faith. There is no greater foundational truth that we get to rejoice in as followers of Jesus. If you hear somebody read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. If if I'm saying those words out loud, if you're hearing somebody say those words, if you're going through your Bible reading plan and you just kind of skip over it because you've seen it a million times, if you hear that verse and you say, tell me something I don't know, then friend, you don't know. It doesn't get deeper than that. It doesn't get better than that. That is the foundation of our good news. And the only appropriate response to this is worship to our God be glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Paul closes out this letter, verses 21 through 23, some final greetings. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who were with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with 
your spirit. So after showing us a picture of gospel empowerment, Paul closes out here with a picture of gospel encouragement. Gospel encouragement. And the first encouragement that we see here is the encouragement of of greetings. And again, this is one of those verses that that you get to the end of a letter and you can just very, very quickly gloss over it. And this is why it's important that we consider what Paul is saying here. He says, greet every saint. So we saw again back in week one, this word saint means holy one. It's not a title that's reserved for an elite class of followers of Jesus. All who are in Christ are saints. We've been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ He says, the brothers who are with me, that's uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, we saw, I said, they greet you. Now pay attention to this. All the saints, especially those of Caesar's household, they greet you. There have been members of Caesar's own household who have been converted, who are now followers of Jesus Christ because of Paul's ministry to them while he's in prison. So so again, just put this in its context. Paul is in jail. He is waiting to stand trial before Caesar, who has the authority to take his life. And what's Paul busy doing? Leading members of his own household to faith in Jesus. This is such an important picture to see because you, you just imagine, again, these are letters that Paul is sending back to the home front. He's sending to the Philippian church. They would stand up and they would read these in the full assembly of the congregation. And so they're opening up and they're reading this. And so Paul's saying, listen, yes, you poor Philippians who who could barely uh, even afford to help me for a season, you who are several hundred miles away, there are members of the royal household who greet you. And not just do they greet you, they are saints. They have come to faith in Jesus Christ. This was Paul's way of showing them the gospel has penetrated the heart of the Roman Empire. That these are the dispatches of a man who's in the trenches on the front line, and this is his correspondence back to the home front. We've broken through. And, and church, I just think, man, in the midst of the year 2020, the challenges that we face, and we got to sit in this room last week, and we got to watch one of those amazing videos Grayson puts together after we have baptisms. The last week, we celebrated four people who had publicly professed faith in Christ through baptism. And listen, in the midst of the challenges of 2020, doesn't it encourage you to know that the gospel's still breaking through? Doesn't it encourage you to know that Jesus is still building his church and we need this constant encouragement within the fellowship of believers? We need to be together this year to be reminded that Jesus is still working, that he's still moving and that his gospel is still powerful and effective. None of us have ever suffered from having too much encouragement. And we need this. Paul says, greet every saint, every follower of Jesus. Greet all of them. I'm going to greet you, and you're going to greet, and you're going to... It's like Oprah, just tossing out, you're getting a greeting, and you're getting a greeting, and it's just, just all over the place. And this is what he calls us to as followers of Christ. We need this encouragement. And last, he shows us here the encouragement of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul ends where he began back in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word grace, charis, it simply means unmerited favor. We've earned none of this. God in his goodness and his kindness, not because of anything that we have, not because of any good that we bring to the table, in his love and in his mercy and grace, he has given us a gift that we don't deserve. And it doesn't just sustain us today, it's waiting for us tomorrow. Grace is always one step ahead of our sin. Everything we are, everything we do, everything we have as followers of Christ, it's all a gift of grace. You know, from the time that Paul wrote these words, it would still be another 1,700 years before uh, John Newton would pen the lyrics to Amazing Grace. But 
I think the lyrics could have still easily been the soundtrack to Paul's personal uh, biography, the way we see it reflected in the book of Philippians, through many dangers and toils and snares I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far. And what's next, church? Grace will lead me home. From the moment he's called us in eternity past until the moment we stand before him and see him face to face, all we have is grace, but the good news is that his grace is all we need. And it sustains him to the end. And so uh, as we, we close this out this morning, I want to look at a few applications of this and just ask, how is it that we, you and I, can remain, as Paul did, totally content in Jesus Christ? I want to do a couple of different things here. I, we're going to look at some applications, but I also want to tie this in for us as a church family, just into some year-end uh, celebrations, and you'll see why here in just a moment. This is, uh, is going to be my last Sunday morning preaching uh, for the rest of the year. Next week, you're going to hear from Cole, our student minister. In a couple weeks, you'll hear uh, from Dave Eatman, who's a pastoral assistant. I'll be with you guys on Christmas Eve, but I want to use this morning, because this weekend kind of marks a weekend where, where for the next couple of weeks, a lot of our church family is just going to spread out for the rest of the year, uh, and so I don't want to end the year prematurely, but, but I do, just in my last moment with you on a Sunday morning, want to be able to celebrate some things um, together, and so how can we, as a church family, how do we remain totally content in Christ? There's certainly individual applications of this, but I also want to look at some uh, congregational applications as well. Uh, the first way we can do this is to simply rejoice in God's provision. It's to rejoice in what God has already provided. Again, Paul's primary reason for rejoicing was not that he had received a financial gift from Philippians. His primary reason for rejoicing was that he was in the Lord. He was content in all that he had in Jesus Christ, and yet he was still very, very quick to give the Lord praise for the financial contributions of the Philippian church because their contributions ensured that the ministry of the gospel was going to continue driving forward. And so uh, in the same way for us, church, if all we had was Jesus at the end of this year, it would be enough, right? Like if we could have just gotten to the end of this year with our faith intact, like that feels like enough in the year 2020. And I just, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this over the next few minutes, but I, I cannot even begin to tell you this morning how the Lord has not just continued to sustain us this year, but how his, his spirit has just exploded forth in our community. Through the ministry of, of his, his people. And that there's just so much uh, that we have to rejoice over at the end of this year. You know, when we hit this whole thing back in March, and it's like, there's no playbook for this. There's no playbook for this whatsoever. And our, our heart was just to continue doing what we're doing. is to open the Bible. is to preach the gospel. It's, it's to try to get really, really creative in some really weird ways, like Easter to drive in movie theater, just to continue driving forward this this mission, and, and I'm just, I'm so excited to tell you this morning that the church, we didn't just survive this season, we thrived in the midst of this season. In spite of the challenges this year, we, we saw over 20 people publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ. Like, how, how do we not celebrate that this morning? And in the midst of the, the year of one of the, some of the most, like, in, intense economic certain, uh, uncertainty that we've ever experienced as a nation, okay, so, so this is going to blow your mind a little bit. In, in the middle of the year, uh, in faith, in the midst of, of all of that, our elder team made the decision to not only not cut back on our budget, but we actually increased it. And, and I'm happy to report, still with two weeks to go, church, we are still well on our way to blowing even the increased budget goal out of the water in 2020. We're rejoicing in God's provision. You, you look at the property uh, that the Lord provided for us this year. He was, uh, provided that property for us through your generous, faithful giving 
through the For the Gospel campaign over the last year and a half. Uh, he provided through a, a generous donor who was willing to, to donate a large portion of the property to us. Uh, he provided through a, a town council that was willing to support an increase of not just one zone, but two zones. Those of you who know those things, that's a little bit crazy. Uh, he provided through a, a group of neighbors who have already been around that property who publicly supported us, even though most of them aren't even in church anywhere. Like, and they, they welcomed our work in, encouraged the work, supported the work. He's continued to provide. And so I shared this last week. So we gave these two challenges back at the beginning of November uh, was for the last two months of the year that we would increase gifts to our general budget by 10% and then to give above and beyond contributions to the For the Gospel campaign. Uh, last Sunday morning, I shared that uh, just during the month of November, we gave uh, $50,000 above and beyond our general budget to the For the Gospel campaign, which was definitely worth celebrating since last week. We have now, since the beginning of November, given nearly $100,000 above and beyond to the For the Gospel campaign. Can we celebrate in the Lord's provision? We celebrate the Lord's provision. He is not, it would have been enough if all we had was Jesus. And he continues to give us more and more in advance. It's five years ago this past fall that we were having some of the earliest interest meetings for Cross Community Church. Five years in, the Lord has never failed to meet a single need. He has never failed to meet a need, and so it's my hope that we'll continue rejoicing in his provision and having faith that he'll continue to provide. That's where we find contentment, is knowing that we have all that we need in Christ and then rejoicing if God in his mercy chooses to give us more. Second, we remain in God's power. You know, we saw that I can do all things. It's a declaration that we can be content with our present circumstances. You know, for, uh, for, for some, that there's discontentment because we feel like we're always in a position where we need more. But, but many of us, I would argue in this room, probably most of us, we suffer from discontentment just because we always want more. Like we have enough, but we're, we're always just wanting more, just trying to get to the next thing. And so if you find yourself today in great need, you can live with the confidence that your greatest need has already been met. Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins, and by God's grace, you can put your faith in him and believe in him and be saved. And if he's met your greatest need, you can live with the confidence that he'll meet your smaller needs. And if you find yourself today in great abundance, trying to find your satisfaction in the abundance and the emptiness of things, the contentment that you desire is not going to be found in what you spend on those things. The contentment you desire is knowing what God has spent on you. He gave Jesus for you. He did not spare his own son. This is, I think, a very important prayer for us in our context today. This is from Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me the falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. If you are weak in contentment, Christ within you is your strength. So whether you're discontent because you never seem to have enough, or you're discontent because you're always just wanting more, Christ within you is your power, regardless of circumstance, to say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Third, we rest in God's promises. You want contentment in him? Rest in his promises. Just as a quick recap here this morning, Philippians is a, a book full of hope-filled promises for those who are in Christ. We saw one in chapter 1, verse 6, the promise that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God did not save you and then abandon you. He is going to see you through to the end. 
We saw in Philippians 2.13 that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's not just going to give you the energy to do it. He will give you the will and the desire to do what he's calling you to do. We saw in chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. Isn't that good news in 2020? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's really good news. We saw last week that we can practice his word, and the peace of God will be with us in this morning, that God will supply every need of ours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And church, I think it's important for us to understand this morning that God, in what he promises, he promises to supply our needs, not our wants. And that's a distinguishing line that we need to draw. God has provided all that you need to be saved. He has provided all that you need uh, to walk in obedience to everything he's commanded. And you will need everything you need to follow him faithfully until the day you see him face to face. Jesus gives this promise again, Matthew 6. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Rest in the promise this morning that because he's cared for your greatest need, he will care for your smaller needs. And finally, uh, remember God's people. Find contentment in him. Remember God's people. My, Paul's final greetings here in verses 21 through 23, they show us the heart for, for, that God has for individual people. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And the brothers who are with me greet you, and all those who are in Caesar's household, they greet you. God cares about individual people, and if you're going to know true contentment in Christ, you need the fellowship of the local church. We have a mutual ministry within the body of Christ to encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. So uh, much of what drove Paul's contentment, much much of what fueled him even during his very difficult circumstances, was in his constant remembrance of the saints. This is how he opened the letter back in chapter one, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. It was, it was in being with them. It was in remembering their love and their faith and their support. It was within the fellowship of believers that, that Paul found great contentment in, in Christ. You know, uh, interestingly enough, this was this past week. Many of you may have seen this online. Uh, Gallup released their annual results. It's a survey uh, that evaluates mental health every single year. And so basically, uh, they survey a number of Americans across the board from a number of different categories, and they ask them to rate their mental health as being either excellent or good or fair or poor. And Uh, As you can imagine, in the year 2020, every statistical category marked a sharp decrease in excellent mental health except for one. There was one statistical category that didn't just sustain from last year but actually increased uh, excellent mental health from where they were last year. You know who it was? It was uh, religious, those who attend religious gatherings on a weekly basis. Because this is what the gospel promises us. It's not just that we will survive but we will thrive in the midst of difficult circumstances. Listen, I, uh, we're, I've already gone over this morning. Sorry, it's my last Sunday, so I'm just saying a lot of things right now. Make sure I get it all in. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't want to get on this soapbox. I don't want to go down this, this, this rant this morning, open up this tirade. But church, I don't know about you. I don't need anybody to tell me that church is essential. I don't need anybody to define that for me. I'm not waiting on any government to give me permission to tell me that it's important for us to gather because we know that we need each other. You need the fellowship of believers, and I I hope and pray that you will make the local church uh, your preeminent priority in the year ahead. Now, worship attendance has been a complex subject this year, but I think you really get the point. The point is that we need each other. Church, I want to give us a challenge as we're going this morning. Like We have brothers and sisters from even our own congregation that for one reason or another, the enemy has used this season to isolate them. And and there's uh, been... uh, 
a, a breach in communication where we've tried to reach out or others have tried to reach out and it's just not really been reciprocated. And, and the enemy has used this season to isolate people from the body of Christ. I mean, I just want to give us a challenge this morning because this is bigger than our staff and our elders and ministry team leaders. I just want you to look around. Look around Sunday morning. Look around your community group. Who have you not seen in a while? Who have you not heard from in a while? And how much do you think they might benefit from your encouragement this week? To call them completely agenda-free and just say, I love you and I miss you and I'm here for you. We need each other. We need each other. We have a mutual responsibility to shepherd one another in the name of the Lord. You know, it's been a difficult year, but man, by God's grace, Cross Community, we're still here. We're still here. And, and so, um, excuse me. It's been a hard year. As we close uh, this this morning, um, close my final Sunday with you this year. I just, I want to, I didn't really know what else to say this morning to express my gratitude for you, my, my, my thankfulness for you, and how you've just remained supportive in everything uh, this year. And so I just wanted to copy and paste from Paul a little bit what he shared, uh, we've looked at over the last few months from the Philippian church. I just want to share these words with you from my heart today. I thank my God in every remembrance of you. You are my brothers and my sisters, whom I love and long for. You are my joy and my crown. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And may, by God's grace, we continue to be a people of invincible joy. So, Father, we come to you this morning, and I thank you for every person who's sitting in this room today. Father, I thank you for those who are listening in online right now, who cannot be with us, who wish to be with us. Father, we, we, we lift up even those who are of us, but um, for one reason or another may be disconnected from us right now. Father, I pray that your grace would be known to them in real and tangible ways today. Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of this congregation in the face of immense challenges this year. Lord, we rejoice in your provision. So, Fathers, we begin to close out what has been a very tumultuous year. Lord, we thank you that we still have you, and we still have your word, and we still have each other, and that this has been enough to sustain us in the face of everything we face this year. Lord, you're so good to us. We're so undeserving. You've reminded us this year that you are still building your church and you've shown us once again the picture of what it means to be defiant in the face of the world's brokenness by living with invincible joy and faith in your son, Jesus Christ. So I, I, I pray, Father, these last couple of weeks of this year for every family that's here, I pray that they would find renewed energy and encouragement in you would find renewed rest in you, would find renewed confidence in you, Lord, that you would stir up something unusual in us over the next couple of weeks. Lord, that we would just come out in January, guns blazing for your glory. Father, how desperately our nation needs you right now. How desperately they need what we have. So Father, guard my heart. Guard this church, guard our people. Bind Satan away from this place, Father. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, with the knowledge of your word, and give us a zeal and a passion for your glory to be made known to the ends of the earth. 
from every man, woman, and child, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all who have never heard the name of Jesus. Father, and we ask in faith, will you revive this place? Revive our community, revive our city, revive our state and our nation. We're in the heavens, Father. Tear them open. Pour out your Holy Spirit on your people and move in our land in a way that we've never seen before. Prepare our hearts and minds now for this work. Keep us rested in you. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said it.